Monday, see the story of the reindeer who saves Christmas for us all and earns a place in Christmas history. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on all the social media platforms. Uh, you can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts. If you want to support Cinematic Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast possible as well as the Cinematness movie. Um, so anyway, Jim, uh, today on the Cinematic Void podcast, we're going to be doing a deep dive into, you guessed it, Bob Clark's uh, A Christmas Story. Wrong! Well... That's probably a little too dramatic for that. But <laughs> no, we are going to go on the off-beaten path, as we normally do with Cinematic Void. And we're going to talk about Christmas movies. We're going to talk about Christmas horror movies. But in the non-traditional sense. So if you're tuning in, hoping to hear about Black Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night, those kind of things, I would say you would be disappointed. But no, you won't be disappointed. We are here to just open your eyes to a whole plethora of movies that take place on Christmas that you might not even realize. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about some things. One, Nick, you have glasses now. <laughs> <laughs> Just jumping right into it, are we? Yeah. <laughs> what This is new. I I was on a Zoom call with you, and then I saw you with glasses. Like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, I've been blind for a long time. But now I see. <laughs> You're just, is that how you got glasses? Like, <laughs> hey man, I'm blind. You're like, here you go. Here's some new glasses for you. <laughs> here I am. It's uh, it's 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 changed my world already. You know, I, mean, I it's it's quite different to be able to see everything. Not really, real talk. No, I remember the point where like I needed glasses and didn't realize like I could like I just thought shit was just out of focus and that's how humans sit. You just kind of guessed at I just like. I thought the world was always kind of a little. A, it looks a little blurry. And the other thing I want to talk about, we just passed Thanksgiving, as we're going to backtrack to another holiday. And I want to talk about the turkey hardcore song that you worked on, because it, it ended up turning out really cool. So if you didn't catch the Cinematis Thanksgiving special that we did, we showed Home Sweet Home, one of Nick's favorite movies, if you remember. Still don't understand why anyone's injecting PCP in their tongue. but, And we also showed Blood Freak. And there was a little skit in there featuring the great Deanna Rooney, directed by Jonah Ray, 
of the killer turkey from Blood Freak. And because the movie had this weird Christian anti-drug angle, I thought it'd be funny if like, hey, the killer turkey from Blood Freak should be in a straight-edge hardcore band. So it's like, Nick, just write some shitty 90s like straight-edge hardcore riff, and you're like, let me do my research. And I think you did a deep dive and all that stuff, and you like, put together a pretty good riff, and then I sent it to Jonah and Deanna, and then what came back was just like, holy shit. Jonah and Deanna reeled it back into more uh, 90s vegan straight-edge hardcore territory, so and if, if you want to them for that. Yeah, and if you want to check it out, I've actually been in the process of upping the YouTube game for Cinematic Void. So if, obviously, old Cinematic movie episodes are no longer going to be online, but I've started pulling the sketches out. So if you missed, like, say, the Michael from Barry Ground sketch or the um, Satanic Call from Hack-A-Lantern, I posted all those up individually, including the Blood Free Q&A that has that really awesome straight-edge hardcore killer turkey song. So, if you missed it out, you can go check that out at least. And now, let's get into the current holiday we're heading towards, which is Christmas. And, you know, since I started Cinematic Void, I'm going to be honest, I have not really done what you consider traditional genre film programming. And a lot of it was just out of necessity, because our friends at the New Beverly pretty much have Black Christmas on lockdown. Which is fine. It, Black Christmas is a great movie, and it's like a New Beverly tradition. They played, or they did before pandemic. It was always once a year. They paired it with another Christmas classic, usually Silent Night, Deadly Night. I think for the last few years, that's what it's been. And then they put the other ones like Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, and Christmas Eve on like midnight shows and things like that. So, I knew I had to do shows in December, and I was like, what's a way to do a Christmas movie that isn't widely considered a Christmas movie? And then... I looked at all the programming I did over the years, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But overall, I was just thinking, like, how many movies are indirectly Christmas movies? And then I had an idea. Let's just do an episode where I put together a Christmas marathon of non-traditional Christmas movies. I know. You and you sent me a list of the movies we're going to be talking about on this podcast before I saw any actual notes to the, to the podcast. So I just started watching these movies. And the only theme that I could figure out between all these films is that none of them are Christmas movies. That's, that's <laughs> the only thread here. But they, they do have a bit that takes place on Christmas. And I, I can regardless of how fucking flimsy the justification is, <laughs> and you're going to have to bear with me because some of these are really flimsy, they do have a tie to Christmas. So let's just jump into it with our first selection. Now, if you want to do this at home, I'm not going to really give you, you... You got Google. You can find out most of these, or you might already own some of these. So for the first film in our non-traditional Christmas marathon, it's a film from 1975. It's a movie that I really, really love. It's directed by Dario Argento, and we're just going to get red, deep red with it. That's right. Dario Argento's Deep Red is a fucking Christmas movie. Well, sort of. And, yeah, the Christmas connection is only in the murder flashbacks that you see briefly at the beginning and then you see tied in later in the movie where the little kid watches his dad get stabbed in front of the Christmas tree. But, it happened on Christmas. And that's the end of the Christmas connection here. That's it. For those of you who haven't seen Deep Red... You should probably correct that as quickly as possible because, you know, personally, I feel like it's maybe the greatest Giallo ever made. 
And we'll be talking more about Giallos next month for January Giallo. And we'll probably do more of an Argento episode at some point. So we're not going to get into too much detail about Deep Red. Just the Christmas connection. So for those of you who haven't seen it, you know, not going to get too deep. But basically, jazz pianist played by David Hemmings and a journalist played by Derry Nicolata, who sadly just passed away maybe a week ago since we record this podcast, to try to unravel the murder of a psychic. Again, not very Christmassy. It, again, it's just that flashback. Although I will make a defense that the the nursery rhyme that plays throughout that the killer puts on the cassette tape and plays before he, they kill people, it's kind of Christmassy. It's like, yeah. la, 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 la. I'm doing it terribly. But yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like Christmas. It's got a vibe. It's got a vibe. And in fact, like when they're around the Christmas tree and the son's all happy, his dad's coming to give him a hug and gets fucking stabbed in the back by the mom. That's the song's playing. Now, what time of year was this released? That I don't know. You got that answer? I do, I do not. <laughs> I do <laughs> Call not. me out. I do not. It just, hit, it just The thought just hit me. It's like, well, maybe this was released at Christmas. Maybe it is a Christmas movie. I mean, obviously it had an Italian release and then it had a U.S. release where it was originally released as the Hatchet Murders over here. Uh, you know, again, this whole premise is going to be running thin here. But... There's going to be at least a, at least one scene, if not a fragment, that makes it a Christmas movie. So, yeah, Deep Red's a Christmas movie. Although we celebrate January Giallo, and I think the first year, the first film I showed for January Giallo was Deep Red on 35. But it, it can be a Christmas movie. You know, try it out. It's a classic. Watch it either way. Yeah, I mean, you should watch Deep Red regardless, but... Your mileage on how Christmassy may vary, but, you know, I stand by it. Those flashbacks, that little nursery rhyme. Anyway, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll return. We're going to go into the second pick on our non-traditional Christmas marathon on the Cinematic Void podcast. Wednesday, it's two best-loved holiday classics. Good morning. And good cheer. It's the Peanuts Gang's Christmas Spectacular. But what's Linus's secret of Yuletide spirit? I can tell you what Christmas is all about. A Charlie Brown Christmas. Then, twas the night before Christmas. Who can save St. Nick in the nick of time? Three seconds to Christmas. Wednesday. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into Cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We are talking non-traditional Christmas movies on the Cinematic Void podcast, and we're theming this as a marathon that you can watch from home. So the first selection was Deep Red. Now, for this next one, I'll be honest, it actually, out of all the movies, legit takes place on Christmas. Like, there's definitely a Christmas Eve and the Christmas Day bit. And it's a retelling of the Hansel and Gretel tale set in 1920s England. It stars Shelley Winters and is directed by the great Curtis Harrington, who also held Night Tide, Queen of Blood, and Ruby. We're talking about the hagsploitation classic, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue, from 1972. And if you haven't seen it, let me just 
set the table for you, the Christmas table, as it were. To the children and staff at the orphanage, Auntie Rue is a kindly American widow who gives them a lavish Christmas party each year in her mansion. In reality, she's a severely disturbed woman who keeps the mummified remains of her little daughter in the nursery in the attic. One Christmas, her eye falls upon a little girl who reminds her of her daughter, and she imprisons her in the attic. Nobody believes her brother, Christopher, when he tells them what happened, so he goes to her rescue. Now, I mentioned the term hagploitation, which is a kind of like a subgenre, which kind of had to do with like aging actors who ended up doing horror movies later in their career. And the movies that come to mind are um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane with um, Betty Davis and um, Joan Crawford, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, and Harrington and Winter's previous collaboration, What's the Matter with Helen? And incidentally enough, it was Winters who requested Harrington to be the director of this film. And I know they sell it as like she's disturbed in the movie, Shelley Winters' character, Auntie Rue, but like honestly, I don't think she's disturbed. She's grieving. Like what happened to her daughter, that's now a dead body that she keeps in a coffin in the attic, was she slid down the banister and then fell and died. Yeah, right. Which is like the stupidest way to fucking die, but. It was a traumatic... No, don't do it. Yeah, literally, it's a no, you don't do it. And then, like, she gets, like, maybe, like, like a foot down the banister and just fucking falls and cracks her head open. You know what? I'm I'm just here to say no one's going to die from this. Well, they did in this movie. So, you know, I'm just debunking this whole thing right now. <laughs> well, you know, it was different in 1920s England. Floors were harder. Yeah, things are different in England. <laughs> Oh, no. I mean, I, I feel like it would just be a broken arm or maybe like a skull. I mean, medicine wasn't as advanced, so maybe that was more fatal in the 1920s. I don't know. I've never slid down a banister and cracked my head open. Who knows? But anyway, my takeaway, because this is the one movie I actually rewatched because I haven't seen it in forever. I watch it with my wife, and the takeaway we both had from it was, like, she's not really a monster or deranged. She's just grieving. And, like, doesn't know how to deal with it. And then they kind of force the Hansel and Gretel thing where the kids think she's going to cook them and eat them when she's just trying to cook them a meal. And it's like, I don't think she was ever going to cook and eat you. And then you just fucking kill her. These kids are dicks. Kids are dicks. The, the, the boy that Christopher, I forget the name of the actor, he played Oliver in Carol Reed's um, Oliver adaptation. And, again... This movie takes place on Christmas, but it doesn't really feel like a Christmas movie. But then again, like when I think of like Christmas Carol and like all 800 versions of it, like it it's kind of in that same vein of just like it's a dark fairy tale, obviously. My only real note on this after watching it was the fuck were they singing? Tit Weasel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, something like that. You know, I don't know what fuck. the what the fuck's a tit weasel? All right, we got we got to look up is tit weasel real? I mean, I know there's a tit mouse. Is there such thing as a tit weasel? Tit willow. Tit willow. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like tit weasel better. I don't know. So, but that, kids are singing it. Kids are singing a, a, it. Ruth singing it. Tit weasel. Tit weasel. I'm surprised someone hasn't sampled it. Everyone always samples fucking Annie in hip-hop songs. Someone needs to sample whoever slew Auntie Rue and do a fucking... Ah, you know what? I just made the connection. Is the uh, Tit Weasel, Tit Weasel, Tit Willow, and Pussy Willow from uh, John Waters' Serial Mom. Aha. Uh-huh. 
Just Ooh. making the connection there, which we'll talk about some John Waters later. Yeah. Actually, yeah. We're going to talk about some John Waters later. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, we're going to talk about movie number three in our non-traditional Christmas marathon here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. <laughs> Welcome back. We are talking non-traditional Christmas movies on the Cinematic Void podcast as we pose a potential Christmas marathon for you to watch. Up next is the number three film in our marathon, which also happens to be a part three of a series, although it wasn't originally intended to be that way. And if you want to take a guess, it's a religious film of sorts, kind of. Of course, we're talking about William Peter Blatty's adaptation of his own novel, Legion, that got rebranded as Exorcist 3. If you haven't seen the movie, it stars George C. Scott, Brad Dorff, Scott Wilson, and Jason Miller sort of reprising his role from The Exorcist as Patient X. And, you know, plot-wise, a police lieutenant played by George C. Scott uncovers more than he bargained for as he investigates a series of murders which all have the hallmarks of the deceased Gemini killer, which leads him to question the patience of a psychiatric ward. So, how exactly is Exorcist 3 a Christmas movie? Well, I'm going to tell you. Scott's character goes and watches It's a Wonderful Life at a movie theater. What other time of year are they going to show It's a Wonderful Life? Exactly. Exactly. This is is actually, this this one gets a pass on. This is a Christmas movie. You know, what fucking psychopath watches It's a Wonderful Life outside of Christmas? So it has to be a Christmas movie. I mean, I'm sure there's... You know, there's people who watch Halloween on Easter or whatever, but it's just like, I don't think you can, it doesn't feel right to watch the movie. I, I'm not really a fan of It's a Wonderful Life for a bunch of reasons, and I don't know. It's it's a Wonderful Life's a fucking depressing movie. You've seen it, right? I actually have not seen It's a Wonderful Life. You, I'm, I'm not going to recommend it, but like, yeah. it, it's one of those movies where it's just, I mean, basically Jimmy Stewart's character is like contemplating suicide, so he has an angel talk him down for Every most of the movie. Every time a bell rings. Every time a bell rings, an angel hangs himself with his own belt. Well, autoerotic asphyxiation. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. I've already seen the movie then. A couple things before we get more into Exorcist 3. And kind of tying in with um, It's a Wonderful Life. I remember the first year of Cinematic Void on the same night we showed It's a Wonderful Life at the theater. I was in the little theater, the Spielberg, and I was doing a Christmas-themed double feature of Microwave Massacre and Frosty the Snowman. I was showing a 16mm print of the Frosty the Snowman special that used to air on TV. Might still air on TV. I don't have cable anymore, so who the fuck knows. The reason why we're showing it with Microwave Massacre is because the guy that voiced Frosty the Snowman is also the star of Microwave Massacre. This was... 
this was a grand moniker thing. And writer-producer Craig Muckler had come out, and Jill Sholin, who was in Popcorn, came out to introduce him. Not sure why, but hey, cool, Jill Sholin's hanging out. And also Chris Malarkey from Twin Peaks and a bunch of other stuff was there because he's friends with Craig Muckler. It was a weird night. But it was kind of fun, and, you know, people were getting into Microwave Massacre, watching Frosty Snowman. And I was out in the lobby talking to Jill Sholin and Craig Muckler when some lady stormed out, It's a Wonderful Life, and was screaming, you need to kick this person out. They're yelling at me. They're being assholes or whatever. So you go in there. Apparently, there was this two families kind of fighting, and it's a wonderful life. And it was right after the 2016 election. So things were heated. I guess things are still heated four years later. So what happened was one group was quietly talking during the movie to their family. And another person told them, please be quiet because it's ruling my enjoyment. I won't get into which side was politically leaning or whatever, but it turned, it escalated into something that it shouldn't have been. And it got really, really heated, trying to like pull someone out of It's a Wonderful Life. They're screaming. It's like, am I going to have to stop the movie? Am I have to call the cops and get people to leave? <laughs> it... It ended up working out, but like it was definitely a weird disruption, and I had to go back and do a Q&A for Microwave Massacre. So it was a bizarre night, and when I think it's a wonderful life, I actually think about that screening, and it makes me never want to see that movie again. Right on. Now, I actually have screened Exorcist 3 around Christmas time, specifically as a Christmas movie. I actually did it last year when the Aero Theater was trying to do midnight screenings that didn't really work out for a variety of reasons. And... I remember the month of December, I had a ton of vacation time I had to take. So I ended up taking almost all of December off. And the first day I took vacation, I got sick. And, like, was, like, the sickest I've been in years. I don't know what I had. It was pretty bad. I don't want to say I was, like, did I have an early version of COVID or anything like that. Honestly, that's what I'm thinking. Because, like, I literally don't get sick. And, like, I just remember just feeling just awful. And I felt awful for three straight weeks. At the end of these three street weeks, I had to go to the Arrow and do an intro for Exorcist 3 at, for midnight down at the Arrow Theater. And, you know, I there's a recording of the intro. I've never listened to it because I have no idea what I was saying because, like, I was still kind of... I was all hopped up on NyQuil or whatever, like, cold medicine there was. And I remember, like, there's a volunteer for the Cinematech named Bob Anker who shot a lot of photos for a lot of Cinematic Void events. And every Christmas event we do, he would bring all these hostess cakes for us to throw. I'm the only one on stage. So I had all these boxes of hostess, and I'm like, I feel okay. I'm going to start throwing them. And as I'm throwing them, I started, like, getting winded and just, like, I was, I felt like I had gotten better. And I just, like, oh, my God, this is, I can't handle this. <laughs> I think I just end up chucking full boxes and stuff. But, like, yeah, that was my push to show the Exorcist 3 on Christmas. And didn't really take off, but... I'm an innovator, goddammit. People will start watching this at Christmas. I guarantee it eventually. This movie is more of a Christmas movie than Die Hard. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd say that. Now, let's talk about a couple cool things that are in this movie. And the first thing is, and I actually just loaned you the Blu-ray because you haven't seen it, is the Legion cut, which is the original intended version, which wasn't supposed to be sold as an Exorcist movie. I'm not a fan of the Legion cut, I'm gonna, we're going to watch it, and we'll talk about it on another episode. Okay. 
that's about it. But, like, there is, you know, some cool stuff in there. The Brad Dorff's Gemini Killer character is based on the Zodiac Killer. George C. Scott in genre films is one of my favorite subgenres. Like, just him showing up in, like, Hardcore or The Changeling or things like that. Like, I love when George C. Scott just, like... I guess part of it is, like, taking the money. I don't know if he needed it, but, like, I always appreciate when he showed up stuff. And he's really, really good in it. Which goes against the fucking Golden Raspberry Awards that, like, gave him a nomination for his performance in Exorcist 3. I'll say this proudly. Fuck the Golden Raspberry Awards. This shit is stupid. Like, it's a bunch of just assholes with things like, we're above stuff. It's like, they always give awards to movies that are actually good that don't do well at the time. So half their awards don't age well. I don't know, I think the shit's whack. Like, just the whackest shit possible. I'm not. I'm actually not familiar with it. So they just give awards to films that they don't like. Films they consider bad. It's like, it's the thing that Mystery Science Theater gets accused of, like you know, ridiculing movies. Where Mystery Science Theater is more about like you know, they love those movies and they're just you know, just talking over, having fun with them. Yeah. This is just being malicious and just trying to be a dick. Like, oh, this movie sucks. And like, they always go out of their way to like. It's not even... I don't even think half the time they see the movies. They just pick easy targets like Geely and shit like that. And it's like, I'm not defending Geely. I've never actually seen the movie. But it's just like... I feel like just because of when it came out and who starred in it, that just made it a target. Whatever. And the last little fact here about Exorcist 3 that I found was interesting. That Blatty had originally asked John Carpenter to direct. And John Carpenter was interested. And the only reason why he didn't direct it was because he knew Blatty wanted to direct the film so they kind of stepped back you know i know blatty had quit the movie and they were gonna have someone else come in and direct and they were gonna change stuff around then he came back and it's just like you know i i think exorcist 3 for what it ended up is a really good movie like that jump scare like the nurse with the fucking shears jesus christ i mean it became an exorcist movie so you had to have an exorcism scene of sorts which, I kind of feel bad for Brad Dwarf because he actually gives a really good performance as the Gemini Killer, only to be transposed into Jason Miller's Priest from the Exorcist as Patient X. We're going to take another break, but when we return, we have more non-traditional Christmas movies here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. We will return to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer after these messages. Come on, everyone, it's time. Hello, I'm Orville Redenbacher. This is my favorite time of the year when we Redenbachers get together to share the best of the season. Of course, we pop up plenty of my light and fluffy gourmet popping corn and my gourmet microwave popping corn. Ready? You'll say they're the season's best, or I'm not. Redenbacher. Great grandpa to you. May your holiday be the best there is. We are Welcome back. We are talking about non-traditional Christmas movies here on the Cinematic Void podcast, and we're posing it as a movie marathon that you could watch potentially on christmas or around christmas however it however it makes you feel holly and jolly for this next film which is in the number four slot we're kind of heading back to our home state of maryland for a film directed by the incomparable completely outrageous merchant of sleaze depravity and comedy of course we're talking about john waters movie stars mary vivian pierce mink stole Edith Massey, and of course, The Vine as Dawn Davenport. Yes, it can only be female trouble. Uh, I think you mean John Waters. Waters. Oh, hitting that fucking, hitting that Balmer accent. Dundalk. That's right. 
Like, I think maybe up until polyester when he started bringing in people like Tab Hunter and stuff, you like some you would hear people use it. And there was a thing called Hunfest, which I don't think Oh, it still exists. It still exists. Oh, absolutely, it for sure does. I know John Waters fucking hated it, but Anyway, for those of you who haven't seen Female Trouble, the life and times of Dawn Davenport showing her progress from loving schoolgirl to crazed mass murderer, all which stem from her parents' refusal to buy a pair of cha-cha heels for Christmas. She runs away from home. She's raped. Funny enough, she's raped by Divine out of drag, which is just a weird scene. We'll talk a little bit about that. She becomes a single mother, a criminal, and a glamorous model before inevitably meeting her rendezvous with the electric chair. This movie is mwah, chef's kiss on just sleaze and trash cinema. I, I actually like this more than Pink Flamingos. And Pink, Pink Flamingos is a high benchmark. You know, Divine eats a piece of dog shit at the end. And the movie's like, just outrageous. <laughs> yeah. But like, I feel like with Female Trouble, like, there's a little more structure to it. For if sure. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, those early John Waters films was just him just like, what kind of weird, fucked up, outrageous shit can I do? Like, there's just, like, this kind of, this fun smugness to, like, oh, this looks like a real shot. I'm just going to, like, fuck it up so it look doesn't look correct in a way. It was a really great aesthetic. And, like, you know, out of all the regional filmmakers that came around, like, no one made movies like John Waters, especially in that period. But I guess we should get into why this movie's a Christmas movie. Well, it has to do with those cha-cha heels that um, Dawn Davenport didn't get for Christmas. And that scene is enough. <laughs> you just laugh because I said cha-cha heels. It's just, like just like the way you said it, like everybody already knows about the cha-cha heels. I mean, it's the big plot point. It's the <laughs> okay, biggest plot. I mean, plot. it is, but like it's just, it's just like I've, I've never heard of this movie, and it's just like, you know, the fucking... I talked about, it's in the fucking, like, plot breakdown. Like, she didn't get her cha-cha heels. Basically, Divine playing Dolan Davenport loses her absolute shit. I mean, it's absolutely fucking true. She's like, she's like 40 playing a fucking teenager. And like, (laughs) and like, it's just absolutely insane. Dude, she fucking <laughs> trashes the fucking present. She fucking topples over the tree so onto her mom. I don't know how to back this up into uh, turn this to a cohesive piece, but um, it, you don't have to at this point. <laughs> we don't have to even start it. Derail everything. Look, it, it's amazing <laughs> sequence in a movie. It takes place on Christmas and thus makes it a fucking Christmas movie. Granted, nothing else after this has anything to do with Christmas, but that scene alone is, like, top-notch fucking Christmas carnage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, I just remember the last time we saw it when it played the Egyptian theater, like, or last time I saw it, maybe, I don't think you were there, but I I should, maybe you were there. No, I, I actually was there. No, I've, I've seen it, but it's it's been quite a while. Now, it actually played during a Rated X series that the American Cinematheque did at both the Egyptian and the Arrow, and I think originally they wanted to do Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, but, um... Pink Flamingos was on hiatus, so they ended up playing Ralph Bakshi's um, Heavy Traffic as a second feature. And I hadn't seen Female Trouble in a while. And I was up in the booth hanging with the projectionist, Mike. And I just remember that scene hitting, and I was just like, this is fucking just balls to the walls, just like anarchy. And it gave me an idea that at some point, and this is going to be when the theaters reopen, obviously, I want to do a Christmas double feature of Female Trouble and John Waters' favorite Christmas movie, which is... 
Christmas Evil. Cool. That's that's been on my agenda for many Decembers at Void. It hasn't happened yet. I'm just putting it out there. Obviously, now that I put it out there, someone's probably be like, "It's a good idea. Maybe I'll do it." It's fine. Go ahead and do it too. I'm just going to do it in L.A. So don't. <laughs> Anywhere else in the country, fine. Just don't do it in fucking L.A. Then we might have a beef. But yeah, that's the extent of the Christmasness of this movie. Uh, we were talking about that screening at the American Cinematheque, and one of the funniest things I realized, and I'm goddamn certain John Waters did this on purpose. Now, we showed a 35mm print, which means there's real changes. At the end of one of the reels, it has Divine, out of drag, playing Earl Preston, basically the guy that rapes Divine, or Dawn Davenport in the movie. And there's a shot where he's walking towards the camera with his dick out, walking right at it. And if you've ever seen a real change, you know about the cue marks that pop up. Cue marks start popping up as he's walking towards the frame with his dick. And at the absolute end where you have to hit the real change, it's a close-up on the dick. So, basically, you force the projectionist to stare at a dick. God bless John Waters. Yeah, it's fucking genius. Like, it had to be intentional. I mean, it had to be. It's, it's too perfect not to be. We should probably talk more about John Waters, because, like... When we were living in Baltimore in the late '90s, early 2000s, like he would actually go to the punk and metal shows around town. I, I swear, I saw him at a, at a the Locust show. He probably was at a Locust show because they ended up being on the Cecil B. Demented soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, at the at the auto bar at the location where it still exists, the, the second location. Now, I actually saw him at the first location, the auto bar, which I forget. It was um, when it was like. There was an alleyway that separated the auto bar from the sidebar. This this has nothing... Unless you're from Baltimore, none of this makes sense. But for Nick and I to have this conversation, we have to... Da- Davis Street. Davis Street. There you go. And it was... I think it was Phobia, which is a grindcore band that was from L.A. that I think now lives in Austin. And Pig Destroyer, which was band from Virginia, D.C. area that is one of the biggest grindcore bands going. And we're standing outside talking, and all of a sudden, John Waters steps outside the auto bar. Everyone freezes. He kind of freezes, and then he like kind of sidesteps and walks behind a dumpster and then vanishes. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, I remember when I was in a one of the bands I was in, a grindcore band that I'm not going to mention for variety of reasons. Like we played a show with um, Mastodon and Dillinger Escape Plan at the auto bar, and John Waters was there. And he was drinking martinis the whole night. So, if you want to have John Waters come to your punk show, make sure you serve martinis. There you go. All right. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we return, we're going to close out our Christmas non-traditional marathon here on the Cinematic Boy Podcast. Hello, I'm John Waters. And I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you that smoke anyway, it gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Welcome back. We've been talking about non-traditional Christmas movies here on the Cinematic Void Podcast, and we've been posing as a marathon. So here's the film that would be in our tentative number five final spot for the evening. It's from 1977. It's from our neighbors in North Canada, 
It's directed by the great David Cronenberg and stars porn star Marilyn Chambers. Of course, we're talking about Rabbit. And you'd be like, how's Rabbit a Christmas movie? For one, this is the only movie we've talked about that actually features the Santa Claus. Be it a mall one. You know, it it probably is... I don't say it's as Christmassy as whoever slew Auntie Rue, but it's enough. I mean, shit. You see Santa Claus. It, it has to be a fucking Christmas movie. So, like Deep Red, I have a feeling we're going to talk about Rabbit on a future episode in more detail, so we're just going to keep things brief as possible. But here's the basic gist of what happened in this film. A young woman develops a taste for human blood after experimental plastic surgery, where she now grows a penis-like appendage out of her armpit to feed on people, thus turning them into blood-crazed lunatics or zombies or however you want to say. And those people, in turn, then turn other people into blood-crazed lunatics or zombies or whatever. As we stated, how's Rabbit a Christmas movie? There's a sequence in a Canadian mall, and this is after the shit's kind of hit the fan and, like, this this plague is spreading. Obviously not relatable to anything that's going on now in the world. Obviously. And one of the blood-crazed lunatics pops up at the mall and starts attacking people. A cop with a machine gun, which has been problematic since the beginning of time, and continues to be a problem, opens fire trying to shoot this crazy, and instead guns down the fucking mall Santa Claus. Merry Christmas, everyone. You know, it's a really great sequence, and I guess the other thing that kind of makes it feel Christmassy is that it was it took takes place in Quebec, and there's something about, I don't know if there's a lot of snow on the ground or anything like that, but it feels cold, it feels wintry, feels kind of bleak. You know, when I think of Christmas, I I don't feel, I'm not one of those people that are like, let's put up Christmas decorations and put on Mar- Mariah Carey and be all happy. Christmas is kind of depressing to me. Uh, from what I understand, Sissy Spacek was, uh, was going to be the lead in this film, but, uh, but they didn't like her Texas accent. That was part of it. The other part was they didn't feel like she had enough sex appeal. Now, David Cronenberg wanted her because he saw her in Badlands, which is a fucking all-timer. Back when Terrence Malick only made, like, two movies and then disappeared, then came back with a thin red line, and now you can't stop Terrence Malick from making movies. But Badlands is a masterpiece. And I can see why Cronenberg wanted her. And if you think about Marilyn Chambers, although kind of different in, you know, different career arcs, they kind of have a similar vibe. They're both kind of redheads. I, I love that they just went like, oh, this actress, she doesn't have enough sex appeal. Who should we get? And then they just get a porn star. And they just go for it. Now, most of the time when that happened, it's not transitioned well. But like people like Robert Kremlin, who was in Cannibal Holocaust and Eaten Alive and things like that, he did okay in like movies. And Harry Reams was in a bunch of like normal horror movies outside of porn but this was really the only movie marilyn chambers did outside of porn and she's really fucking good in it yeah and it's a damn shame she didn't end up doing more like normal movies i'm not trying to give anything away but if you happen to watch the upcoming cinematis movie on december 11th you may hear a little bit more about it but don't take it from me i'm just sitting here talking on a podcast that may or may not have anything to do with what's coming up on the virtual screening spectrum of things. It, I, I actually like Rabbit a lot. And I think, you know, Rabbit it was basically Cronenberg's previous movie, Shivers, a.k.a. They Came From Within, on steroids. You know, it's 
kind of an epidemic thing. Um, back, Jesus Christ, earlier this year, at the beginning of the pandemic, I did an episode by myself before we figured out how to work through Skype and, you know, sitting six feet apart recording now as we are. I did an episode on my own where it's basically about Grindhouse Epidemic films. So I talked about um, Shivers, I talked about The Crazies, and I talked about I Drink Your Blood, all starring Lynn Lowry, but like, you know, they're, you know, it was, it was fitting the topic. It is probably poor taste on my part to talk about like pandemic movies. But Rabbit is kind of yeah. like extension of Shivers and all those other movies. Yeah. Like more on a, because Shivers just took place in the apartment complex. This was more like all through Quebec, probably heading towards Canada. And like, it's a really depressing movie. It's kind of vampire, kind of zombie. It's a contagious. Yeah. It, you know, I'm not trying to say it has anything to do with what's going on in the world, but I don't you know. know. You, could, you could draw those comparisons. I mean, I don't think anyone with COVID has a fucking penis-like thing coming out of their armpit and stabbing people. But, Oof. you know, I, I went to Trader Joe's today, and while I was waiting to check out, some guy, like, had a meltdown about moldy cheese, so... You know, maybe there are some crazies out there that are infected. I, I I don't know. We'll just leave it at that. But as much as I think a five-movie marathon is really good, I think we're going to have a bonus option. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to talk about a potential sixth movie. It's not, it's not exactly canon, but to your discretion, you may be into it. So we'll be right back on the Cinematic Void Podcast. <laughs> There's one product no medicine cabinet should be without. Uh -oh. Alka-Seltzer. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, uh, ho! Alka-Seltzer. Ho, ho, ho! Ho, 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 ho! For acid indigestion with headache, nothing's more soothing or effective. Ho, ho, ho! No wonder it's America's home remedy. Welcome back. We've been talking about non-traditional Christmas movies here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. And... We finished our marathon, but in case you were kind of hungry for more non-traditional Christmas, we wanted to give you a little Christmas bonus, maybe a stocking stuffer, if you will. So we're calling in one of our good friends of the void, one of my favorite people, Mr. Mike Felix. Mike, how you doing? Good. Thanks, you guys, for having me on. For this sixth movie in our non-traditional Christmas marathon, this is one of your favorites. In fact, you... You asked me to screen it, and I actually obliged you a few years ago. So, I'm going to let you get into it. What is the sixth movie? Sixth movie is Bloodbeat, which is a Wisconsin shot slasher movie, I think. It's Wisconsin or one other state out there in the Midwest. Uh, and it was shot by a French director. And the producers of the of this slasher film wanted to make a, a low-budget horror film to enter the horror market and, you know, hopefully cash in so that they could then go on to make bigger and better things. So they hired a French director and uh, who had, uh, thought he was making an art film. And the product that they created was neither of those things. It's not a slasher film and it's not an art film, but it's all confusing and all a good time now it does feature heavily some uh, deer uh hunting footage that uh you helped us intro and uh it it definitely uh you know the appeal of it to me when i suggested it to you was 
uh, Vinegar Syndrome had put it out on Blu-ray. And I'd gotten a copy and I watched it and it makes zero sense. There's there. The killer is a ghost samurai who strikes when the lead female care character is getting intimate with herself. And which happens a few times throughout this this film. And he's represented on camera by this bad, badly rotoscoped blue outline of a you know sword and uh it's got telekinesis that isn't quite explained it's you know <laughs> it's and it's christmas set and that was the main hook of why i was text uh, you know texting jim and asking him to play because you know here in la in the programming scene you're at no shortage of seeing uh, Black Christmas at Christmas time or Silent Night, Deadly Night or even Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 to get your garbage day fix. But there's a, there's a dearth of other holiday horrors that get programmed around. So I was, you know, when I when I watched it, I was like, Jim, this is the, this is your Christmas movie. And I was excited because I was like, all right, this is this is this movie's moment. Nobody has heard of Bloodbeat. It hasn't played anywhere. Vinegar Syndrome just put out a Blu-ray, but not many people had gotten it. And uh, it was low on the radar, on the cultural radar. And I'm like, thinking about that anecdotal story about how on a, uh, it, at the Cine family one year after their, one of their Halloween marathons, they threw on the shot on video slasher Sledgehammer, which again is a, like Bloodbeat, is a movie that makes zero sense and is bonkers and is entertaining for those for those factors. So I'm like, this is Bloodbeat's moment. There, it's going to be the next Sledgehammer. You know, the right people are going to see it and they're going to start talking about it, and it'll become part of the new Christmas canon for you know '80s horror movies getting played around town. And so you paired it up with. Dial Code Santa Claus, which is a great move on your part because Dial Code Santa Claus destroys audiences. It's, it, you know, it plays like gangbusters. It's Home Alone meets, and I, I don't know if you guys mentioned it earlier in your podcast or not, but it's, you know, it's Home Alone meets Silent Night, Deadly Night, and it's French and it's totally inappropriate. It's, you know, a kid trying to fight off a murderous Santa Claus. And uh, so the screening was on a Wednesday night, I want to say. It was a Wednesday. Yeah, it was a Wednesday. And I think the turnout was pretty good. Do you remember the, the ticket count from that night? It was decent because, like, at the time, the, the basic selling point was seeing come see the movie that Home Alone probably ripped off, which was Dial Code Santa Claus. And I remember originally that was going to be the only movie that played. And I remember you talking about, like, please play Bloodbeat. Please play Bloodbeat. And I talked to Grant, and I was like, might as well do a double feature because it's not gonna the cost would the price was right and they're both gonna come from agva so it's just like ah fuck it we'll just do Bloodbeat, and i'll bring mike up and if anyone hates the movie i'm gonna direct all the hate mail towards you anyway i'll, I'll be honest yeah. i'll be honest and i regret it but i came i came to that show and watched uh dial code and left before Bloodbeat, and i i want to apologize for that Oh, no, it's okay. That was like 60% of the audience had left after Dial Code. Because, again, Dial Code just destroys. It's great. Like, you could pl you could start playing. That's the that's the new addition to the Christmas canon that needs to get rotated in alongside 
Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night and all those because it it's fun. We, we did the intro, which was fun. And uh, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I know I cashed in all my uh, cred with you to get you to play Bud Beat. And so this was this was my moment. I'm like, this this is uh, this is the time for this movie. This is the place. These are the people. And so like half more than half the audience leaves after Dial Code. And, it, you know, <laughs> we, we get the hardcore straggler uh, cinematic void audience. And so I take, you know, after the intro, I go run around to the side of the stage and I, I, I had set up a chair so I could see out of the left hand of my uh, vision, the screen. And so I could watch the movie and out of the right hand of my vision, I could see the audience because I want to see their reactions. This is this is this is the moment for me. I'm going to, you know, enjoy this moment. And the movie starts playing. And of course, the the deer footage is up front and so that immediately starts a wave of walkouts not too many and then the movie starts going and just it's just one by one i see people walking out and uh especially when it gets to the point where uh you know the main character is masturbating and that's when the uh, samurai strikes and uh you know that set off another wave of walkouts until you know and i stayed for until the very end and i think there were five people left who had <laughs> sat through the whole thing and they did not look enthused they were not entertained by blood bait and you had you know wisely given out my twitter address and my facebook account uh you know to the audience before this screening and the next day on social media even that night at, you know after I, I drove home i was on letterbox trying to defend it from people rating it like one star who i knew were at that screening in twitter and you had gotten the only hate mail i've ever seen you get in your your years of programming cinematic void people were not happy to have seen bloodbeat the few that that stayed for you know a chunk or most of it and uh you know so i had to go in there jump in there and try to defend it and you know, try to justify its charms, and uh, yeah, you're Nick. You're you're probably better off not watching Bloodbeat. Well, after this podcast, we're gonna dox you fully. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine because <laughs> you know, I I imagine if anybody remembers this screening, they're they're in need of support and or therapy, and I'll I'll provide both to them. You know, so to the haters, I will fight you. To the, I think there was one person that liked it. And uh, even then, it was a very middling, like, yeah, it was okay. And my favorite part of the movie is that it's not, it's never explained uh, why the killer is a samurai or a ghost samurai, why it's targeting these people. And it only comes out, and I've only know this because I've watched Bloodbeat like five times at this point. There is a scene in the middle of the movie where the main character is un un unpacking a trunk of her father's belongings. And she uh, is talking about, I guess, his service in the war or something like that. And I think it, it, it's at that moment that it explains why there's a Japanese samurai killing people in Wisconsin. And the line is mixed so low in the, uh, in the you know, the dialogue is mixed so low that you cannot decipher it. Like, I've, I've, I've A-B rolled that moment and you cannot make out what she's saying. So they just, like, never got the line down and never 80 yard it and 
know. So the whole reason for the movie's existence is just muffled. And I don't know if that's an endorsement or not, but uh, if that sounds like something you would enjoy, I would highly recommend Bloodbeat because it, it makes zero sense and it's uh, confusing as hell and it, it's inappropriate for so many reasons. Mike, if people like Bloodbeat or don't like Bloodbeat, how will they find you on social media? I'm on Twitter at Cinefelix, so, uh, you know, like Cinefamily, but with my last name instead of uh, that accursed uh, name. I'm also on Letterboxd under the same, or I also uh, run the Cinematic Void Facebook group, so you can uh, join that, and uh, we can correspond about uh, Bloodbeat, and I can send you Bloodbeat gifts. <laughs> You have bloodbeat gifts. I sent you one when I was when I was uh, <laughs> petitioning to get the movie. I was like, I sent you a, a bloodbeat gift because it's a moment where it, it's the uh, telekinesis uh, soda can throw. And, yeah. <laughs> and I wrote, this movie has it all: masturbation, rotoscope samurai, telekinesis, and uh, I don't know if that's what if that's the moment you broke down and were like, and was like, I need I need to get show this to get Michael off my back. Sometimes you just gotta prove a point. Yeah, <laughs> and you you definitely proved that point. And you were you were wise to pair it up with uh, Dial Code Santa Claus, and wise to not let me make suggestions anymore. <laughs> Mike, you're one of my dear friends. I I actually do, I I do like Bloodbeat as much of a fucking train wreck the movie is, but I have appreciation for movies that probably shouldn't exist that come together under weird circumstances, like you do. So, I will say I'm happy I show Bloodbeat. I'm also happy that a lot of people left confused, angry, and all that. And I think that, you know, Bloodbeat's a perfect cinematic void movie. And I'm going to give you credit for that. Because it's a movie that no one has seen. That, regardless of how good it is, I think people should watch it. Because they're never going to forget it. Even the people that fucking hate Bloodbeat will never forget that they sat in a theater... And watched either a third of it, two thirds of it, or made it to the end. It's going to scar them for the rest of their life. But, hey Mike, we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to do rewatch and listen. Do you want to hang out and do rewatch and listen with us? I would love to. Awesome. And it won't be about Bloodbeat. Are you sure? I've already made the case for that film. A ghost. A ghost. A devil. A devil. All it what you want, what you will. Lives, lives, breathes, breathes. You'll be paralyzed with fears, with fears. It kills, as it kills, as mutilates, mutilates anyone in its path. Anyone in its path. Is possessed, possessed, tormented by a psychic power, psychic powers. Blood beat, blood beat. A horrifying, horrifying change. Welcome back. It's now time for on the Cinematic Void podcast, where we talk about all the media we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. And since we still have Mike Felix on the line, Mike, why don't you tell us what you've been reading, watching, and or listening to during these 
December Thanksgiving whatever fucking time this has been. December pandemic time. Uh, there's no holiday season like a pandemic holiday season, right, guys? No. For what? I'll go first with watching. Uh, for watching, I've been very attracted to comfort food. So um, I've been watching a lot of Mystery Science Theater 3000 since that's like my uh, my all time favorite TV show, and uh, it uh, it just speaks to me. So uh, when I get home, it's just a, a natural thing for me to want to put on and uh while i'm doing other things did you watch the turkey day marathon i sure did that was uh that was a lot of fun i like uh seeing all three eras represented so it was good to see some jonah episodes thrown in there too and you know see them all uh do new intros and such but uh you know the reason i i I, you know i really appreciate the show even as an adult is you know and i know it takes a lot of flack for uh kind of introducing the idea to audiences that, you know, movies are to be mocked. And, you know, it, it, it should, you know, it takes some heat for that. And But, you know, as a kid growing up, it introduces you to a whole world of cult cinema that you may not have otherwise encountered. Because, like, how else are you going to see an Ed Wood movie or, you know, a Bill Rabane movie or, uh, you know, you know juvenile delinquency films or you know without having these things introduced to you so i I, you know i want to give it props for you know melting the mind of a young michael felix and uh, introducing him to a lot of the uh cult cinema he would he would grow up and enjoy as an adult big shout out to that for reading i i don't i i buy more books than i read because i just don't give myself a lot of time to read but i did read the biography of the producer michael dealey it's called uh, Blade Runners, Deer Hunters, and uh, Blowing the Bloody Doors Off. And he's somebody who uh, came up in British cinema in the 60s and then pro- just happened to produce this string of what is now, you know, rightfully acknowledged as cult classics. He produced the original Italian Job. He produced Don't Look Now. He's the person who cut 20 minutes out of The Wicker Man and dumped it into cinemas as a B feature to Don't Look Now. <laughs> he uh, produced The Man Who Fell to Earth. And then he kind of, oh, he produced The Deer Hunter and won an Oscar for it. And one of my favorite anecdotes from the book is uh, he talks about how he keeps his Oscar on a high shelf so that he doesn't have to read Michael Cimino's name uh, off of it when he looks at his <laughs> accomplishments. Uh, yeah, so if you're, you're a fan of that era of filmmaking, or especially the uh, elusive figure that is Michael Cimino, uh, definitely give it a read. He uh, ends his career producing Blade Runner, and you know it goes into uh, more depth on you know all the various uh, problems that movie had getting to screens and then getting reevaluated as a classic. But, uh, you know, it was very interesting uh, life he led. And, uh, you know, that's quite a filmography to have brought into the world. And then for listening, uh, I was struck by the, you know, October death of uh, Eddie Van Halen. And uh, so I revisited all the classic Diamond Dave era Van Halen, which, you know, I hadn't really acquired over the years. Uh, you know, so I'd bought albums here and there piecemeal. And, uh, you know, what a, what a band that was uh, for that era. And, you know, as much as, uh, you know, they never really created a great album, every every one of their albums in the uh, David Lee Roth era, you know, had at least one or two, you know, solid bangers on them. 
even Diver Down, which is the one that gets the most flack for being mostly covers, uh, has their uh, version of uh, The King's Where of All the Good Times Gone and uh, a version of Dancing in the Street, which is way better than the uh, the Jagger Bowie version. So um, I didn't revisit any of the Hagar era of Van Halen because, uh, you know, why would anybody want to do that? It's because you can't drive 55, Mike. He's, uh, he's, you know, Hagar's a good singer, but, I, you know, it, it was also, he joined at the time where uh, the, Eddie wanted the, van, the band to go uh, more serious. And I don't, I mean, yeah, I just don't listen to a Van Halen record to hear anything socially conscious, you know, uh, or, uh, you know, serious adult rock. You know, I, they, they had the formula perfect with Diamond Day. You're, just be the ultimate party band. And uh, for a while they were. How did you feel about Clear Pepsi? Hey, exactly. You yeah. So you and I grew up at the same time. There was the Clear Pepsi ad that it had right now, and that's how I first knew of Van Halen. And then I had to like backtrack to oh yeah, they were like a completely different, better band earlier <laughs> instead of this garbage. Is that just the assessment of Clear Pepsi? Yes, that too. Yeah, they're both flawed experiments that should have not been released to the public. But yeah, rest in peace, Ed, Ed, Edward Van Halen. All right, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right, so reading-wise, I just finished the uh, Dying is Easy Joe Hill graphic novel uh, published by IDW. It's a murder mystery about a stand-up comedian who gets wrapped up in a little kind of like, you know, the cops think it was maybe him, but so, you know, he tries to figure out who it actually was, you know, that kind of thing. Just anything Joe Hill, I'll buy it. Uh, and then I'm just jumping into another one of his graphic novels called Plunge, made by DC Comics. And uh, he's done a whole uh, Hill House series on DC recently. Um, so I'm just kind of excited to check all of those out. Watching wise, uh, I just saw Palm Springs, which is the Andy Samberg. Uh, what is it? Fallen Islands? What the fuck is that called? Lonely Islands. <laughs> uh, Andy Samberg, yeah. Lonely Island. I I fucking love this movie. This is like just straight up like this is just up my alley. Just like some time travel fucking whatever time travel bullshit. Like <laughs> like. Hey, hey, Nick, what's your favorite fucking genre of movies? Time travel bullshit. That's it. Also, just watched uh, The Irishman because it was Thanksgiving, and I'm, I'm ready to just push Irishman. It's a Thanksgiving movie. Here we are. Let's just, like, eat a bunch of food and get really tired and watch The Irishman. Make it a tradition. It's Thanksgiving. Boom. Do it next year if you didn't do it this year. You, were you dipping things in your wine while you watched? I'm not a wine guy. Were you dipping things into your <laughs> fucking lager? Yes. <laughs> yes. I've been listening to this compilation called The Long Morning. It's a uh, compilation of electronic music that comes to accompany a book by Lee Landy, who uh, does a project called Oil Thief. Uh, there are two Oil Thief tracks on this, as well as tracks by Hive Mind, Death Neal. Uh, Death Neal is... One of the guys from Two Mold, a death metal band who are fucking awesome. Um, uh, Failing Lights. But yeah, great comp. Just like, just awesome, like, synthy soundtrack music. I've actually just mostly been listening to that all week. So, there you go. 
All right, for my read, watch, and listen, uh, I've been rereading Yuletide Terror because I'm actually going to be doing a podcast with one of the editors, the Bokela Janice, for the American Cinematheque coming up this week. I don't know when that podcast is coming out because I have no control over the editing of it, but I'm recording it pretty soon, and we're going to talk about the show we did, which was um, Elves to All Good Night with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I'm probably going to mention all the other fucked-up Christmas things, including Bloodbeat and Dalco Santa Claus. And Microwave Massacre. Yeah, we talked about that earlier in the podcast when you weren't on. Uh, Watch. I've been watching a shit ton of things from my watch pile, and I'm very proud of myself because normally I've been goddamn chipping away like one movie every three months or something at this point. And I've been buying a ton of things because we're in a pandemic. It's like... I might as well buy movies that I'm going to watch. And then I end up watching like Rift Tracks on Amazon Prime or something like that. So here's a list of things I watch. I watched Larry Cohen's Perfect Strangers, a.k.a. Blind Alley, that Vinegar Syndrome put out. I used to own the old um, MGM disc of it. It's a, basically about a hitman who realizes a kid solved one of his crimes, so he then gets close to the mother so he can try to kill them both so they don't, you know, blow his cover. It's really good. Larry Cohen made nothing but fucking bangers. So if you haven't seen Perfect Strangers, definitely check it out. It's nothing to do with the 80s sitcom Perfect Strangers. No, not at all. No, Balky doesn't get shot in the face or anything like that. Okay. I actually, because I picked up the Blu-ray at, not the Black Friday Vinegar Syndrome sale, but like I guess the one they did earlier this year. I mean, this year's felt like fucking 10 years at this point, so I can't even remember when I bought it. Uh, I picked up the Blu-ray for Angel which is one of my favorite, like, L.A. exploitation movies. Get to see a lot of Hollywood Boulevard. Might get catch a glimpse of the Egyptian theater in there as they're walking up and down. Highly recommend it. I'm hoping at some point I can do my L.A. sleaze triple feature that Joe Rubin from Vinegar Syndrome and I have been kind of working on off and on because I've done the Grindhouse sleazy triple feature of Cannibal Holocaust, Last House on the Left, and Maniac. I did a New York sleaze with New York Ripper, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, and Driller Killer. So I need to do an L.A. one at some point, and Angel would definitely be one of those titles. I also finally watched my copy of Scream of a Winter Night, which is anthology, kind of regional horror film. I actually watched the extended cut, which had the um, missing segment that hadn't been seen for years. I watched Dead Pit, which, other than being a little long in the tooth, is a really good zombie movie, especially late 80s late 90s stuff that came out on Code Red and um, Dark Force Entertainment. Definitely worth checking out. I watched Nightmare Beach. I actually watched it twice. I watched it by myself because I hadn't seen it forever, and then I watched it with my wife, who really enjoyed it. It's made the same time around as Primal Rage, another Italian production in Florida. It's really fun. It's got Michael Parks, John Saxon, a bunch of people that were actually in Primal Rage, as well as Claudio Seminetti doing the soundtrack again. Nightmare Beach is a lot of fun. Makes you miss spring break, if you ever went to spring break. I never went to spring break, so I don't know why I'm saying I missed it, because I never went. Also watch Pledge Night, which features a score by Anthrax and Joey Belladonna's in it in a role as like some kind of like evil huh. creature thing. It's like another like frat horror comedy thing, but it's actually really gory. Definitely worth checking out. Also watched um, Keeping It, not really collegiate, but Keeping It school-oriented. I watched Massacre at Central High that Synapse finally put out. It is one of the most gnarly exploitation movies ever made. You know, it's basically about a kid that goes to transfers to a school, doesn't like how people are getting bullied, so he starts taking revenge, and then he just can't stop. It's kind of a precursor to the Heathers, in a way, if you haven't 
if you want a comparison. It's cool. it's really bleak, really trashy. Highest possible recommendation. I also watched a Blood on Blood on Satan's Claw. I watched it with the commentary featuring members of League of Gentlemen, one of the great British folk horror movies ever made. And League of Gentlemen like have made those guys made great TV shows. They're big horror guys. They they actually did a Christmas special, believe it or not. It's the League of Gentlemen Christmas special that is like modeled after an Amicus horror anthology. So if you haven't seen that, that's worth checking out too. I also watched Deadline, which is about a writer that starts blurring reality. One of those kind of movies that Vinegar Syndrome put it out. But this one is really bleak, really dark, and really violent. Kind of depressed, but really enjoyed it. And then the last thing I watched was Dario Argento's Sleepless that I haven't seen since maybe the early 2000s when I got a Powell DVD. I picked up the Scorpion Blu-ray of it. I think it's... A lot of people kind of like champion this movie. I think it's still not a great Argento movie. I know he's trying to go back to the, like the heyday giallos with it, but like, you know, the one I like better and I need to pick up that Blu-ray now is the card player, which I know a lot of people didn't like when it came out, but I think it's, it's more in tune and like, I'd say card player, even a more lo-fi is a better movie, but like it, you know, it's kind of nice to revisit sleepless, but not definitely not going back to the opera heyday with things. Listen, I actually put on Judas Priest Painkiller for the first time in many years. I just kind of want to listen to the song Painkiller and like end up listening to the whole album. It was pretty enjoyable. My wife wanted to watch a live stream of this band Spirit in the Room that was playing with N Minor, which is new Phil and Samo band. It's basically Phil trying to be Nick Cave level. Oh, weird. It, it, it's it's not bad. Like one of the the main songwriter of the band is the guitarist from Sixteen Horsepower. I don't know if you listen to the movie. One of the big alter, alternative country bands from Colorado. So like, I started hearing riffs. And I was like, this sounds like Sixteen Horsepower or like Woven Hand or something like that. And I actually looked it up. And it's like, oh shit, it's the guitarist from the band. That's why it sounds like that. But it it's really interesting. It's really low key, not really screamy. If you ever want Phil from Pantera to do Nick Cave. This is the band for you. A couple of re-listens that from earlier this year that I've been putting on again, mostly as we've been talking about like what our top records are for 2020. Put on Freddie Gibbs and Alchemist Alfredo. I actually like it more now than I did when it originally came out, and I really like this record. Shit might be an EP, might be a full length, doesn't matter. It's a goddamn good record. It's also up for a Grammy. Also been listening to Benny the Butcher, Burden Proof, completely produced by Hit Boy. That might be my favorite Griselda-related hip-hop record of the year. Just edging that Conway record. Not by much, but good enough. And then the last record I listened to, which I don't even know why I put it on. I just randomly put it on and ended up listening to the whole thing, was Shellac, A Thousand Hertz. I haven't listened to that record in forever. And it just... Actually, I know why I listened to it, because I think um, Elvis Costello was shit-talking um, Steve Albini and saying he didn't know how to produce records. Yeah, he was. Yeah, that was... Uh quite the swing there from uh, mr costello it's like why bother elvis you're out of fucking pocket man it's like it's not like steve albini's gonna care he's just gonna continue playing online poker or whatever he does when he's not producing records or recording records he doesn't produce he's an engineer which has always been his distinction he doesn't tell you how to record it he just records it for you but yeah i i think that's why i put on that shellac record and it's just like honestly i'm gonna listen to shellac over elvis costello any day of the week Steve Albini also has a really good uh, recipe for whipped coffee. If you uh, Google that, just put like Steve Albini coffee into uh, Google and uh, it's he'll it, you'll be entertained. I'll definitely check it out. I know if you there was a um, I don't know if it was a Reddit or it was a poker website that like he went on there and did an ask me anything. 
And like all these poker players, like, oh shit, you produced in utero, and like start asking them questions <laughs> about like the helmet stuff he produced and like Jesus lizard. And it's really cool because it's long, and he like doesn't do the typical Steve Albini where he's like, I'm just gonna be a dick for being the sake for the sake of being a dick. He's like world class. Yeah. Poker player, right? Yeah, he he He's actually won a World Series of Poker bracelet. Like Steve Albini, don't fuck around. So Elvis Costello, don't gamble because you're gonna lose to Steve Albini. All right, I guess we're gonna wrap up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. I want to thank Mike Felix for joining us and once again championing Bloodbeat. Mike, do you have anything you want to say to your fans before you go? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Mike, it, it's good to see you. Hopefully, we'll yeah, do it. We'll be, yeah, hopefully, we'll see you in person again, either at the drive-in or maybe three or four months from now when the theaters reopen. But, Mike, you're one of my favorite people. Thank you for stopping in. Thank you guys very much. We got one more episode for December on the Cinematic Void Podcast where Nick and I are going to talk about our top fives, Blu-ray releases, and album releases of the year. So, keep your eyes peeled for that. Until then... See you in the void.